of announcements. Educational meeting is the 21st, okay? The 21st of this month, October. So that is going to be a, I mean, February. I was testing you. Just wanted to make sure. Okay, I can't make any mistakes tonight. Uh, okay, the 21st of February, and then on, uh, that's a week from Sunday, we'll have our congregational meeting. So that is, um, uh, plan on that. Then we still have prayer requests for Camp Arete. The dates are set for the 17th to the 24th, is that correct? 17th to the 24th of uh, July. And they still need a kitchen leader, kitchen workers, uh, a nurse, an executive director, no, just an activities director. That's right. <laughs> just wanted to see if Jeff was paying attention. So, uh, and then the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference is coming up on March 16th through 18th, which is uh, like five weeks away. So we're getting into high gear for that. And then uh, also the Israel trip scheduled for December 20th to 31st next year. And we'll have, I just was talking with Barb just a second as I walked up here, and we're going to get that posted up on the uh, Dean Bible Ministries website uh, by tomorrow. There's a couple of little details that, uh, that, that are probably not correct on a couple of hotels, but we're still working that out, but, but everything else, and that really doesn't affect anything. Um, so we're still trying to work that out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Since the Word of God will stand forever, it is clearly inspired, inerrant, and infallible, which is what we're talking about. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure that they're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have given your word to us. You have revealed these things to us, that it's not a testimony about human beings' relationships with you. It's not a testimony to their thoughts about you, but it is your word revealed through man to us. And because you have guaranteed it and you are in, you are uh, without sin, you are omniscient, omnipotent, and <clears throat> omnipresent, we know that it is absolute truth. Father, as we continue our study, reinforce, strengthen our understanding of your word, our understanding that it has a, an authoritative mandate for us to submit to it and to let it transform our thinking, and that this isn't just academic pursuits, but this has to do with our submission to your absolute authority in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study 
and that our faith may not only be strengthened, but we may be able to uh, communicate these things to others as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, today is February 11th, and according to uh, Robert Morgan's On This Day book, which I like to look at every now and then, and he has, every day has a story from church history, he tells a story of of William Sangster, and this this call he titles this that he writes four rules for dying. I thought this was this was important. I know that we have people who listen, others who are uh, aware that they have life threatening diseases that will uh, not they will not recover from whether it's a year, two years, or three or four years, and this is an, a, a very appropriate story to be aware of. When entrusted to God, even sickness can be a tool for God's glory. When Jesus was asked in John 9 why the man was born blind, Jesus said it happened so that God might be displayed in his life, that God would be glorified. Uh, Paul, if you recall, had a thorn in the flesh. And again, it was to not only to humble him, but also to demonstrate that God's grace was sufficient. Well, William Sangster was a Methodist pastor who was born in London in 1900, and he had a remarkable ministry, but towards the end of his life, he had a, a, a muscular disease that eventually killed him, and he wrote four rules for facing illness. A little bit about Sangster. He was born in London in 1900. He began to attend a Methodist church at age nine. When he was 13, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was 16, he preached his first sermon on February the 11th of 1917. He served in the military. He went to college. He became a Methodist circuit preacher, and he frequently worked himself to exhaustion. And he continuously said, I just can't do enough. Uh, but he was well-loved as a pastor and as a preacher. In 1939, as World War I was uh, beginning, he became the pastor of Westminster Central Hall, which was a Methodist church near London's Westminster Abbey. And he announced to his congregation on his very first Sunday that Britain and Germany were at war. He converted the uh, church basement into an air raid shelter, And for 1,688 nights, he ministered to the various needs of all kinds of people who came there to uh, for protection from the air raids. During that time, he still managed to write, to preach, to earn his Ph.D., and to lead hundreds of people to Christ. After the war, he he led the led Britain's Methodist Home Missions Department until he was diagnosed with progressive muscular dystrophy. And for three years, he slowly died. As he was facing the reality of his disease, he wrote four rules for dying. Number one, I will never complain. Number two, I will keep my home bright. Number three, I will count my blessings. And number four, I will try to turn it to gain. And apparently he did all of those things, and his last years were a great testimony to God's grace in his life, something we should all pay attention to. 
All right, tonight we're continuing a topical study in the midst of our study of First Peter, and we're continuing to study on inspiration and inerrancy. And I taught this, according to my notes, I think I taught this fairly exhaustively uh, the last time when I was still at Preston City, and I'm adding a tremendous amount to it because I'm, I'm going back, I'm studying a number of things. I got a book this week that's so hot off the press it almost singed my library when I brought it in the house, and it is almost the size of a Houston Yellow Pages, and it is on, it is written by a number of current uh, professors, uh, theologians, dealing with uh, contemporary issues, vital issues in inerrancy. And it is dealing with where things are today. A lot of the stuff that I have in my library, some things I bought when I was a seminary, a few things I bought after that. But this battle for the Bible continues. And in every generation, not only do we have to refight in terms of a military fight to uh, reacquire, to preserve our freedom, in every generation, it seems, we have to fight the battle for the Bible all over again to preserve our uh, recognition of God's authority. And we live in the devil's world, and so the authority of the Bible is always under assault. And that's the real issue here, the authority of the Bible. For um, almost uh, 17 to 1,800 years in the history of Christianity, the issue of biblical authority and the infallibility of the Scripture and that the Scripture was revealed by God uh, through man to man was not questioned, but starting in the uh, middle to early 1700s as a byproduct of the Enlightenment, the foundation was laid for what would develop in the 19th century as, as 19th century Protestant liberalism. And it begins as an assault on the text of Scripture and, and the authority of Scripture and a rejection of its authorship by God through man and a rejection of the doctrine of the authorial intent of Scripture. That meaning in Scripture comes from um, the intent of the divine author and, and the human author. And so you get into things like source criticism and historic criticism and form criticism, all these other things, which basically denies the authorship, human authorship claims uh, of the Scripture. And this erodes, and it doesn't become really popular until, or spread in popularity until you get into the early 19th century. Now, I've been developing a lot of material on that, but we're not going to get there tonight. But that we have to understand this. We have to understand that this same issue continues to rear its ugly head. And ultimately what happens in almost every generation is you get a group of academics, a group of theologians, who claim that they are actually trying to preserve Christianity and to protect it in light of these intellectual realities that threaten our understanding of the truthfulness of God's Word. And so under the, that, that guise of protecting Christianity and protecting the Bible, what they end up doing is completely revising Christianity and revising the Bible so that their solution ends up being more damaging than what the enemy was doing to begin with. And this happens uh, uh, in, in a broader-based sense outside of conservative evangelical circles. 
But it's in the last 50 years, it's happened at least twice within alleged conservative evangelical circles. There was sort of a first stage of this battle for the Bible that occurred in the 60s and 70s, and now we're getting a reiteration of it. And so we'll talk about that. But this is why it's important to understand this. This is just one other place where there is a battle being fought today. And if you talk to anyone in witnessing that has been exposed to a a lot of the skepticism towards Christianity uh, in America, whether they heard it in the college classroom or whether they heard it uh, on the Discovery Channel or History Channel or any of those uh, television channels, PBS and and whatnot, then then they're going to repeat those things because they think that's true. They think that uh, because in these these um, uh, these these kinds of documentaries that they present on the on the Bible, they always go seem to go to the most liberal, the most extreme, uh, off the edge uh, scholars who present the mo- some of the most outlandish theories that have absolutely no basis in fact. And then people hear that, and because these people have PhDs from a number of different schools, they think that, well, they must know, and so there must be genuine reason to doubt the historicity of the Bible, to doubt the accuracy of the Bible, and to uh, doubt what the Bible says about science or about history or about any number of, uh, of other things. So it's vital that we understand these things because that's where the, part of where the major battle is being fought today, and it's an undermining of biblical authority. And even evangelical conservatives come prey to this because we think that that somehow maybe the Bible's not quite as true, and the sin nature just wants to latch on to these kinds of rationales in order to justify its own misbehavior. And we have to be guarded against that. And we also have to be guarded because none of us get to the point where where we aren't prey to some doubts at times. We may come under uh, some serious pressure uh, from uh, disease. You go to the doctor and find out that you've got six months to live, or you have a grandbaby, or you have a baby who dies uh, you have uh, you lose your job and you go 36 months without income and you lose just about everything that you've had. These are the kinds of intense pressures that really test somebody's belief in a good God who is going to bless them and whose word is accurate and true. So we need to study these things. So I've got nine reasons why it's important for us to understand the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility. First of all, because the authority of the Bible is linked to linked to the character of God. The authority of the Bible is linked to the character of God. If the Bible is not infallible, then is God infallible? That becomes a question. So it, it, it's a direct attack ultimately on the character of God. Second, inerrancy and inspiration are taught in the Bible. Inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration are all taught in the Bible. Third, it's the historical belief of Christianity. As I said in the introduction, up until the early to mid part of the 1700s, this was an unquestionably, even if you didn't believe the Bible, you still believed the Bible was the Word of God. Non-Christians knew that they were 
uh, in rebellion against God. They may not like it, but they still believed that the Bible was the Word of God. I remember even when I was in high school in this country in the 60s, especially in the South, if you were in a discussion with somebody and you said, well, the Bible says that was pretty much a trump card. By the late 70s, you could say that and people didn't care. It was just a huge transformation within about a 10 to 15 year period. But this is the historical belief of Christianity. Fourth, it's foundational to other doctrines. If you take away from the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture, it's going to minimize the character of God. It's going to have an impact on theology proper, on your understanding of who God is and what he's done. It's going to impact your understanding of who Jesus is. It's going to impact your understanding of salvation. It's going to impact your understanding of anything the Bible says, because how do you know that what it says in that particular verse is really true or not? Because people are going to come along and they can cherry pick. Well, I like this verse, but I don't like that verse. Like that liberal Jesus seminar group back in the 1990s. Uh, so it's foundational to other doctrines. And once this goes, other things will fall. This is the foundation for every other doctrine in the scripture. Fifth, it's important because this is a critical part of the doctrinal statement of the belief statement of West Houston Bible Church. This is what we believe, and we need to understand that. And, and part of the reason I try at times when we talk about different areas that are addressed in the doctrinal statement is to bring the doctrinal statement out and, and go through it so that people understand what it is that we believe. If you're a member of the congregation, you're supposed to affirm the inerrancy and fallibility and the inspiration and errancy and fallibility of Scripture. Sixth, we need to go through this to more fully understand what we affirm the Bible to be. We say, I believe the Bible is the infallible and errant Word of God. Well, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Uh, we understand these things. We've been taught these things. Everybody in this room believes that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, and errant Word of God. But do you really comprehend what all of the ramifications and implications of that belief statement are? One of them is the sufficiency of Scripture. And yet there are many orthodox theologians today, so-called, who affirm inerrancy, but they don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. They turn to science for a, 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 to assimilate to the doctrine of origins and creation and their understanding of man. They compromise with psychology in the understanding of human behavior. They compromise with sociology in the understanding of, of the nature and function of a local church and how to build a local church. They compromise in all these areas because for them the Bible isn't sufficient. If you don't believe the Bible is sufficient, trust me, you really don't believe in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture. You just think you do. And that's like, uh, as I pointed out earlier in this series when we talked about some of the quotes from that article by Bob Wilkin, these various New Testament scholars, and remember the title of that article was, Can We Trust New Testament Professors? He could have just as easily have written, can we trust Old Testament professors? Some, somebody once said that uh, when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. 
But if he fell and he landed in the choir loft, loft, he bounced into the Old Testament department of our seminaries. Trust me, the heresy and apostasy has begun in more Old Testament departments. Uh, Prince, Old Princeton, um, Dallas Seminary, uh, numerous other places started losing their practical application of inerrancy, and, and the erosion occurred through things that occurred in the Old Testament department. So uh, we need to more fully understand why we affirm that, that the Bible is the, inerrant, infalli- uh, uh, the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Seventh, we need to be able to explain this to others. When you get involved in a witnessing situation, you need to be able to, when somebody says, well, how come you really believe the Bible? You need to be able to articulate why you believe the Bible. And when they ask the question, well, isn't that circular reason? You say the Bible says it's the Word of God, so you believe it's the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. Well, how do you, how do you know? And we need to be able to answer that question. If you were a Mormon, if you were a Jehovah's Witness, if you were a Seventh-day Adventist, if you were in any number of cults and sects, you would be required to go through extensive training where you're drilled over and over and over again in how to answer these questions. So when you go out door knocking on the weekend and you, somebody comes to the door and, they, and you start trying to convince them your cult is the really, uh, is the truthful one, uh, you'd be able to answer all of those questions. But, in evangelicalism, we don't act that way with the members of the church. We let people come and sit and soak up the Word on Sunday morning, maybe two or three times a week, but we don't give them tests and drill them until the point that they're ready to throw up so that they know exactly how to respond to each of 15 different variants of the same question. And as a result, most evangelicals are woefully ignorant of the Word of God We have a lot of people here that aren't woefully ignorant of the Word of God. They know it, they believe it in their soul, and they they can comprehend it. But but if they're sitting down with somebody who's a skeptic and they start answering, start asking them a bunch of questions, they're like, "My pastor knows the answer. I've got that in my notebook at home." Well, that isn't going to do you any good. You have blown the opportunity to say something or to handle that particular situation. And, and any cultist will do a ten times better job handling that kind of situation. Isn't that embarrassing? Well, let's move on. It's too embarrassing. Okay, we need to be able to explain it to others. That was the seventh point. Eight, we need to be able to teach this to our children and our grandchildren and the neighbor's children and the children of the CEF Good News Club. We need to be able to un- explain it at their level so that they can understand that. And as, as they grow up, they need to understand more and more what the issues are. And then the ninth point is that when people go through times of doubt, times of pressure, times of, of stress, they need to be reminded of why they believe. A lot of apologetics is more significant to the believer than it is to the unbeliever. A lot of apologetics is answering the question, why do we believe what we believe? And, and it has to do with strengthening the faith of the believer. See, we don't believe it just because it's there. We, we don't, we're not mindless. We're not irrational. That's what the liberal thinks that we are. But we, we know the Word of God, or we're supposed to, and we're supposed to be able to articulate rational answers. And, but every now and then we need to have a reconfirmation in our own thinking 
of why we believe what we believe. And I've said this for years. I discovered this in my own spiritual life. This isn't something you see in the Scripture, but it is something I have witnessed and observed in in 30 years of, well, in over 50 years of being a Christian and in at least 30 years of being in the ministry or 35 years of being in the ministry. And that is that during your early years in life, you're asking all kinds of questions about what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what's my life all about, do I have meaning, purpose, value? You're asking questions like that, and that's particularly true if you become a believer. After you become a believer, you want to know, what is it that I believe? Is Jesus God? What does that mean? How does that affect to God being God and the Holy Spirit being God? And you're trying to probe all the ideas in the, in, in the Trinity, and then, well, Jesus is both man and God. How do you work that out? And I need to understand my salvation a little more, and on and on and on and on. And probably up until you get into, uh, you've been a Christian 15, 20 years, and depending on how inquisitive you are, you will stop asking questions at some point because you've heard satisfactory answers to most of your questions. Now that, so getting answers to questions is what motivates a lot of believers for the first 10 or 15 years in their Christian life. And that gets them through spiritual infancy, and that's a characteristic of spiritual infancy on into spiritual adolescence. But the real test of your Christianity is to make the transition in spiritual adolescence from wanting to going to Bible class to learn more and to get your questions answered to going to Bible class to be reminded of what you already know. And some people fail at that because, well, I've already heard this. I'll just stay home tonight. I've heard Robbie teach this before. I don't need to hear it again. Yes, you do a thousand more times, and so do I. We can't just sit back and think, well, I've heard this, I know it. I have friends, and you do too, who sat under good Bible teaching for 5, 10, 15 years, or they grew up under it, and they say, well, I understand everything. I don't need to go to church. I know Jesus died for me, and I know God's got a plan, and I can confess my sins. What more do I need to know? I know five promises. I can claim them all, all day long. We know people like that. They're going to be failures at the judgment seat of Christ because they, they, they have a bar that is set so low, only with a microscope can you tell that it's off the ground at all. Okay? They are going to be spiritual failures because they think they know a lot when they don't know much at all. So we can't fall into that trap. We have to constantly be reminded. And every time we do this, we suddenly recognize there's a whole layer or three or four or five that we never thought of before. And that's what what impresses me. I've gotten into this. I got this book I just told you about, Vital Issues in the Inerrancy Debate. I also got another book that's almost as big called The Jesus Quest. And I've got about two or three other books that are about half that size that I've picked up in the last week that I'm trying desperately to read through in light of this study that we're going through right now. But that doesn't count the books I'm trying to read through for Tuesday night in First Samuel or the stuff I'm trying to read through on Matthew. I feel like one time one of my professors, you've heard me mention him before, Stan Toussaint, when uh, Dr. Toussaint began to teach at Dallas Seminary, he had just gotten his Ph.D., and he was a brand-new Ph.D. and brand-new faculty member at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he said, he said, I was still learning what I was lecturing on that morning when I got up. And he said, the first semester I got up and I threw up every morning. 
because I didn't know everything I needed to know to complete the lectures for that morning. Sometimes I feel like that, that I'm one inch ahead of the hounds, and y'all are the hounds, and you're chasing me. So there's so much more to learn. And as I've gotten into some of these books, I'm just like, wow, this is just, this is just incredible. And the implications for a lot of the things that are happening, the trends that are occurring today, not just for this, and this is basic what we're going through right now on understanding the doctrine of inerrancy, but the next question is going to be even more significant, is that is, so the Bible is the Word of God. Well, how do you determine what it means? Because what's happening today is the attack, the assault is taking place in the realm of hermeneutics. That I can say that Genesis, I believe Genesis 1, 1, 1, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 are the inerrant, infallible Word of God. But this is just fits in the category of creation myth, which was a typical um, typical uh, form of literature at that time, and it's not meant to communicate actual real history. See what's happened? I've used a hermeneutical grid that's false in order to circumvent uh, the implications of literal inerrancy and the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture but this is happening all over the place so what we're looking at tonight is the extent of divine inspiration and just to remind you why we got into this as we looked at first peter 1 10 to 12 talking about the the process of how revelation was given to the prophets that they still had to inquire they had to search diligently what God revealed to them and fit it with other scripture and previous revelation, and they were diligently searching the scripture to figure out what it meant, what God to figure out what God had revealed to them. So, doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration. Defining inspiration is God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. So we've looked at this. We've looked at 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, which we'll look at in more detail before we're done. So I'm just going to step uh, past this right now. It's the key verse that the Scripture is revealed by God through this process of theopneustos. God breathed it out into man, and this is the foundation. We also looked at a verse we'll look at in more detail later on, that this is done by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, that these holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, last time, uh, I looked at some key words, and uh, in terms of the definition from our doctrinal statement, uh, plenary verbal inspiration, plenary means that the whole of Scripture is equally inspired and fully re- is fully revealed and inspired by God, that verbal means that it extends down to each and every word and even the grammatical forms of the word, and then the de- definition of inspiration, which means God breathed. Now, I've added this, that at the top we have a stool, and for any platform to stand, it has to have at least three legs. And so this stool is the stool of biblical or divine authority for Christian belief. What do we believe as Christians? 
And the three legs are inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. Three ends. Isn't that nice for alliteration? Inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. So I've added a few things. Here's what I said last time, but I'm going to add to each one of these uh, definitions this time. So the first definition, inspiration, means God breathed. Neustos is the compound Greek word, and it means that the Bible is God's complete and connected thought to mankind. It is coherent. It, It fits together. There are no contradictions. There are apparent contradictions, but what is necessary is to probe and dig and study to resolve. They're all resolvable. But what you see is a lot of people who jump in and just see it at the surface, and they say, well, this is that, and that says this, and they, they contradict each other. End of story. You can't trust the Bible. No, you really have to understand what is going on in each one of those texts and probe it to understand what it means. And too many people have today, scholars, and this has been true for the last 200 years, have been influenced by the critics, and they think, yeah, you're right, that's a problem. And they don't truly, truly trust the coherent Scripture to take the time to understand it, to put it together. So inspiration means God breathed, and in the Bible is God's complete and connected thought to mankind. And the term inspiration addresses the origin of the Bible. It originates with God, in God's mind, in God's thinking. It's called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. second word that we use was infallible. And this means that every word is equally authoritative. Uh, the scripture is incapable of failing. It can't be broken. It can't be wrong. And its authority is permanent and eternal. The word infallible addresses the authority and the enduring nature of the Bible. John 10, 34 to 35 and Matthew 5, 18. Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. In, John, in Matthew 5.18, he says, every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. And then the word inerrancy means that no error existed in the original autographs of Scripture. Not errors of science, not errors of history, not errors of law or politics. There were no errors in anything that the Scripture addressed. Some have seen the necessity to insert the word unlimited today because of the assaults or some that trying to hold to limited inerrancy, which is to me an oxymoron. Uh, But the term inerrancy addresses the accuracy, the truthfulness of God's word. Charles Ryrie makes a comment in his uh, work, Basic Theology, that, that inerrancy is often described in terms of the negative, what it's not. There there are no errors in Scripture. That's describing something from a negative. And so he says uh, that in terms of defining inerrancy positively, he says perhaps the tension would be erased if we defined inerrancy positively. The inerrancy of the Bible means simply that the Bible tells the truth. Truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, Language of appearances, we talk about sunrise, sunset. Somebody says, well, that's not scientific. Well, scientists talk about sunrise and sunset all the time. It's just a language of appearance, language of accommodation. 
uh, free quotations, uh, rather, excuse me, different accounts of the same event, as long as these do not contradict. Okay, that's just the review of that terminology. Now, the next point that is new material is the mechanics of inspiration. Now, I've gone through 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, 2 Peter 2, but we're going to go through in a little more detail uh, looking at the exegesis. We always have to talk about what does the Bible say and talk about these things as much as we can uh, within, uh, within their original context. Uh, that's why it's important to teach verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word for word as we go through the Scripture is because then we come to understand truly how these verses are used in the context and not just sort of proof texting. Everybody does that to some degree, but I've been amazed as I've gone through Matthew, we've heard some, you've heard me in doing some corrections, that when we really look at some of these verses in their context, understanding the argument of Matthew, that, that some of the ways in which people have used these to defend certain theological views, this really doesn't work because it hasn't developed from this kind of a word-for-word, verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. And this is one of the problems that we have today in so many of these mega-churches is the pastors are only giving these short little little sermonette. We're going to have a four-part series on, on marriage. We're going to have a three-part series on how to have happy pets and make sure they go to heaven. And we're going to have a six-point sermon on how not to go bankrupt. And, you know, these kind of little, silly little trivial things, and most of the time they're jerking passages out of context uh, to use them as simply springboards into whatever their little pet peeve is. And and this not only happens in some of those mega churches. unfortunately it's been a tradition in a lot of uh, different theological traditions and church traditions down through history. But once you start really understanding verse-by-verse verse exegesis and exposition, then it starts correcting a lot of these things. <coughs> so, inspiration, how did it take place? In the definition, I use the term that God supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture. How did he do that? I don't know. That's, it, it, it's a mystery to some degree. Ryrie likes to use the term superintended, which is a good term, but I don't think it's a real user-friendly term. But what does it mean that God superintended the writers of Scripture so he wrote exactly what God wanted them to write, but he didn't abrogate their personality, their style, their education, their background, any of those things? Peter writes like Peter. Paul writes like Paul. Uh, the writer of Hebrews writes very different from either one of them. John writes in a, a much different style and, and very simple vocabulary but when you stop to think, well, what does he mean by that? It really stumps you. And I think that John, my personal opinion is John, John writes a lot like Jesus talked. He was called the beloved disciple. And you look at passages like in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking from at least John 1, 2, I mean John 3, 2, uh, up to you get to about John three fifteen and John three sixteen and 17 and 18, and somewhere by 19 or 20, you know that Jesus isn't talking anymore. John's talking, but when did Jesus stop and John start? You know, we've all experienced uh, young men who emulate their professors when they get up and they talk. They emulate the pastor that meant more to them than anyone else. 
We've got people who, um, at times, I've had people say, you know, you sound kind of like so-and-so. And other people say, no, you sound like so-and-so. And, 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 uh, and, and you get football players who are that way or baseball players, and they've got a coach or a mentor. And when they're playing and they're beginning, they emulate the person they admire. But if, they, if they're worth their salt, if they have any sense at all, They'll get out of that immature stage within a few years as they get a little experience and they'll find their own voice and they won't imitate somebody else because God, if God doesn't make duplicates. You know, we only needed one Tom Landry. We don't need 15 Tom Landrys in the plan of God. God makes everybody individually and gifts them individually and you don't have to emulate somebody else to be somebody to be used by God. And so that's part of the growth process. But John, because he's so young when he's under the ministry of Jesus that even when he writes 70 years later, he still sounds like Jesus. So all these writers had their own personalities. Well, how does God superintend and guarantee that they write exactly what God wants them to write, but it's in different vocabulary, different personalities, different backgrounds? I can't explain that. But that is obviously what's going on. So the foundation is described as inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and uh, 17, and we want to take a little bit of time just to understand what is going on here in terms of the exegesis of the Scripture. And it starts off saying, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that... It's, so it's given for a purpose. You don't just stop with verse 16. We have to go on to verse 17. And the purpose of the Scripture is so that the man of God, which is not being sexist, it's just talking about human beings, men or women, that the believer who is following God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, you go right from inspiration into the sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 17 flows out of verse 16. It's connected. So the key word, the key verb, is the one we've looked at before, which is this word, theopneustos. And it is an adjective. Okay? We're going to get into a little grammar here because this is important because the, the guys who are off the charts, who are falling out of bounds, are making some misstatements related to grammar. Okay? So this is an adjective. You have the initial uh, subject of the sentence is Scripture, it's modified by an adjective in the in the Greek, and it's the adjective pas, which means all, every, and the whole. Now, we all know that there are times when all doesn't mean all. But in this passage, it means all. When John says that everyone who was in uh, Judea and Galilee went out to see John the Baptist, I don't think he meant every single person in Judea and Galilee went to see John the Baptist. It's a generalization. But this isn't a generalization. Paul is being very precise in terms of the of the context. And he says every scripture or all scripture is given by inspiration of God. But the problem <clears throat> that we have here is that the the verb is is not in the original. We've all heard the famous line, it all depends on what you mean by is. Well, is ain't there in the original. And we have to look look at that grammar. 
But it's saying all Scripture, and so I want to camp out on that for just a minute, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. What this means in context is primarily Old Testament passages, because in verse 15, Paul is talking about how when Timothy was reared by his mother and his grandmother, they reared him on the Scriptures, the Holy Writings. That's the Old Testament. And then Paul just flows right from that into all Scripture. But this is in... Second Timothy. Second Timothy is Paul's last book just before he dies. But guess what is written before Second Timothy? First Timothy. Okay? And in First Timothy, Paul connects two passages, an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy with a New Testament passage, and he calls them both Scripture. So obviously when Paul writes 2 Timothy and he says all Scripture, it's not just Old Testament Scripture. It clearly includes New Testament Scripture that has been written up to that point and that which will come afterwards because Scripture is Scripture even if it hasn't been, hadn't been written yet. So in 1 Timothy 5.18, we read, For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And the scripture also says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. But that's a quote from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. Well, Luke was only written maybe five years before Paul wrote 1 Timothy. If, if that... Because remember, the chronology, we studied this in Acts. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and then he's held in prison in Caesarea by the sea for two years. And then he takes a ship. They get shipwrecked, and then he ends up in Rome. While he is in Rome, he, he's writing First Timothy, okay, at, at, a, at approximately that time. Luke was with Paul in, 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 in Judea. And in, in Caesarea, and it's probably during that time that he is researching the and, and interviewing all of the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, which is how he starts his gospel. We'll look at that verse in a minute. So that's that's maybe two or three years. So Paul is already quoting the Gospel of Luke as equally authoritative and equally as Scripture as Deuteronomy, linking them both together uh, as, as equal authority. So uh, this tells us that all Scripture has the, is breathed out by God, has its source in God. Another verse is in Second Peter, which is written approximately the same time, maybe a little bit later than Second Timothy. And Peter there says, Regarding Paul, as also in all his letters, as Paul's writing, speaking in them of these things, in which are some hard things to understand. So when you read through Ephesians, and you read through Colossians, and you read through some of these things that Paul says, and you think, I just don't get it. Peter thought the same thing, so you're in good company. Peter said, there's things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture. Well, if there's the rest of Scripture and you're talking about Paul's writings, then that means that Paul's writings were considered to be Scripture by Peter. 
So already in the uh, in the period of the writing of the New Testament, you see that there is the recognition that there are some writings that are breathed out by God and some that aren't. Uh, already there's a recognition that Luke is is uh, is scripture, that Paul's writings are scripture, and that that some others are are, are scripture. So when we look at the beginning of this, when we read all scripture is breathed out by God, this means that the entire Bible, all 39 books, excuse me, all 39 books of the Old Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament are breathed out by God. The New Testament uses the word scripture 51 times, and it always refers to some part of the canonical Bible. Sometimes it refers to the entirety of the Old Testament, as in Luke 24, 45. Sometimes it refers to a specific Old Testament passage, as in Luke 4, 21. And sometimes it refers to a particular New Testament passage, as in 1 Timothy 5, 18. And sometimes it refers just to a larger section of Scripture, as we saw in 2 Peter 3, 16, referring to, uh, referring to Paul's writings. So, uh, Right here we see how the New Testament is already recognizing what is Scripture. So all these things indicate Scripture. Now the verb is, say, excuse me, the what appears to be a verb in English, the way it's translated, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is actually an adjective. It's actually an adjective. And so as we look at this, both theopneustos, and the word translated profitable here, which is ophelemos, see, they both have that O-S ending, okay? Omicron sigma, which uh, indicates that they are, uh, they're both nouns. And so God breathed is an adjective, and ophelemos is an adjective. And the way the structure is, they're both... Um, uh, as, as, uh, as adjectives, they are both used should be used with the insertion of the word is okay they are both they should be treated identically in terms of of grammar as predicate adjectives and so they're they are actually translated all scripture is given uh, or is breathed out by god and is profitable now the reason i make a point out of this is because there are some who seek to avoid the implications of inspiration here, and they translate this, all scripture inspired by God is also profitable. So they're taking the all scripture, they're translating the chi here as also, but they're not treating the two adjectives in the same way. Now, what's wrong with that statement, all Scripture inspired by God is also profitable? What's the loophole? Well, there may be some Scripture that's not inspired by God. Okay? See, it sounds good, but that's the deception. Their their, their conclusion is, well, maybe Genesis 1 isn't inspired by God, but Genesis 2 is. Maybe parts of the Old Testament aren't inspired by God. We just have to pay attention to the, That's why they come up with this doctrinal statement that we believe the Bible is infallible in all areas of faith and practice. Well, what about all the other areas that are mentioned in Scripture? And isn't it infallible and inerrant there? Well, they would say no, but they don't want to tell you that up front, so it's, it's deceptive. 
Now, I want to document this grammatically by looking at a parallel passage. I don't know what happened here, the word. uh, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be received if it is received with thanksgiving. See, this is, I got the is, uh, is in lowercase there. I don't know what caused that font to shift like that, but... um, that is, uh, the is is supplied. You have the same situation. You have pas, every creature of God, and then you have two adjectives, kalos, good, and apobletos, uh, which is to be refused or to be rejected. It has a negative in front of it. So you don't, tra- this verse isn't translated for every good creature of God is not to be refused. See, it completely changes the meaning. But grammatically, it's the same structure. You have the subject, every creature, and then you have two predicate adjectives that should be translated the same way. That's why 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 should be translated, is breathed out by God and is profitable. They both are predicate adjectives, therefore, you have to be consistent and translate them both uh, the same way. And then we get into verse 17 and says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the word every is the same adjective as we have for all Scripture. The adjective pas meaning all, every, the whole of something, and so to be consistent, we have to understand that, that all Scripture, which means all Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all 39 books of the, of the Bible, is profitable for most good works. No, it, it's the same specificity for every good work. In other words, the Bible is going to be, uh, is stated here to be absolutely sufficient. So theologically, what we see here is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means every single statement in the Bible, in 39 books, is the Word of God, not all Scripture breathed out by God. God is the source. It indicates that it's a divine source. God exhales the the, uh, content through the soul of the prophet or the apostle that's writing, and then they write it out so that we can conclude that the entire Bible is God-breathed. That's the means of receiving it. God breathed it out. And that also means the entire Bible is profitable. The entire Bible is profitable. And that tells us that, and that word for profitable is a word that is only used, uh, only used one other time uh, in the scripture, and it emphasizes the fact that something is of their value, of benefit, and uh, provides everything for someone. Now, when we get into verse 17, you have two critical words. You have the word complete, which is the word artios, and then you have the words thoroughly equipped, which is one word, Ex artizo. Artizo is the word for equipped. Back in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, you talk, uh, uh, Paul talks about four gifted leaders in the church. 
the prophet, apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. What are they supposed to do? They are to equip the saints, that is to train the saints to do the work of the ministry. They do that through the Word of God. That is the word artizo. Here we have the word ex-artizo, which emphasizes the thoroughness, the completeness of that training. And so it is through the Word of God that the pastor-teacher equips and trains the individual believer to be able to do the work of, of ministry. So what this emphasizes is that that the Scripture is absolutely and totally sufficient. We don't have to go to psychology, sociology, uh, science, or any other field of human endeavor in order to get truth that in those systems derives either from ra- from rationalism, which never can get you all truth, empiricism, which can't get you all truth, or mysticism. But the Bible gets you all truth. It is It is sufficient. Now, another thing we need to note here is that inspiration is in words. Inspiration is in words. That's what I talked about last time in terms of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Two passages I want to bring out. 1 Corinthians 2.13, where Paul says, these things, talking about the things that are inspired by God the Holy Spirit. He says, these things we also speak not in words. Okay, I I put that in italics to emphasize it. Um, it, We speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches. So he's talking about words, but not words that comes from man's wisdom, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So he's still talking about words. So the the phrase is emphasizing here that it's the words the Holy Spirit uses to communicate. It is the specific words. He uses this word instead of that word for a reason. And he communicates through words because words are that which reflect the, the creativity of God. How did God create the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them? He spoke. It's through words. And so we have to understand that God's revelation is through words and the inspiration extent. It's not in just ideas. It's not just in concepts. It is in the very words that are used. And then an Old Testament passage, Joshua twenty three fourteen. Behold this day, uh, Joshua is giving his last parting words before he dies to the Israelites. And he says, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. He's fixing to die, as we say in Texas. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, All have come to pass for you. Then what he says, not one word of them has failed. See, every single word is important. So God uses various ways, various sources when the writers of Scripture, they use their own personality, but they also use various other ways in which they got their information. He reveals it to them, but there's different ways in which uh, God gives them all that information. And uh, one way is that God directly wrote Scripture. He wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 9.10, The Lord delivered to me, Moses says, two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That's dictation, but that's limited in Scripture. 
God wrote it himself with the finger of God, and on them were all the ideas which the Lord had spoken. Is that what it said? No, all the words. See, it's reaffirmed. It's the words. That's why I take time to go through word studies. That's why I get into the Greek and the Hebrew and the original language. And, and Because if this is God's word, we have to make sure that we're truly understanding it. We can't play fast and loose with it, with us, and that's not always easy to do. Um, another thing that we see is that the material that's used is the result of the research of the writers. For example, in Luke, uh, Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. In other words, he's going to write about the life of the Messiah. Just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So I went out, I interviewed Mary, and I interviewed the other disciples that were around and the other people who saw the, that saw the miracles, and I wrote it down. He did his research. And then under the uh, superintendence of God the Holy Spirit, he, he writes, it, writes it down. In an orderly account, verse 3 to uh, Theophilus, why, verse 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were informed. Okay, so he's talking about there's certainty of knowledge. It's not something that God is hiding, but something that God wants to reveal and expose and make sure that uh, that you understand. Um, we need to understand that according to the Bible was predictive prophecy when it was given. And according to the Bible, it can only be accepted as legitimate prophecy if it comes 100% true. Well, it can only be 100% true if the ultimate author of Scripture knows everything that is going to happen. So that indicates that it must come from an omniscient, omniscient source. We also know that there were historical sources that were used. For example, Luke would have talked to eyewitnesses who traveled with Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, Joshua would have written the things that he witnessed, the things that he saw. In the Toledotes of Genesis, those passages said these are the generations or these are the records of Adam or, or Noah or Abraham, etc., that that indicates source material, that those early uh, people, Adam and, uh, and Noah and Abraham, etc., that they wrote down uh, and they recorded what happened, and that this somehow was passed along. And so when Moses writes uh, Genesis, he had source material. We also know of other source material. For example, in the Old Testament, there's references many times to the book of Jasher. And one example is in Joshua 10.13. Also, we have the book of the Word of the Lord mentioned in Numbers 21.4. Also, there are several references to the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now, a lot of people misread that and they think, oh, that must be First and Second Chronicles. But First and Second Chronicles isn't written until after they get back from Babylon. First and Second Chronicles is giving a record of the kings of Judah, not the kings of Israel. So this is some other source book. We also have mentioned, um, and that's mentioned in First Kings 14.19. And then we have uh, a reference to the Acts, uh, to the book of the Acts of Solomon in First Kings 11.41. Uh, reference to the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. But that's still not 
First and Second Chronicles as we know it because that's not written until after the exile. So these references are in First Kings. That's before the exile. So these were just uh, the records of what was going on, and they were used as source material. There's also a reference to the book of, the, of Nathan the prophet. So God isn't just sort of mystically pumping data into the writers of Scripture. They're using source material. God's overseeing the whole process as they as they uh, as they write. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I've got some other material, but we're already out of time. But this works us through the major part of the of the inspiration, understanding the um, uh, the exegesis of First Timothy. Uh, or excuse me, Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Next time we'll talk about uh, a few other uh, interesting things related to uh, Jesus' use of Scripture. One of the things I want to get to eventually before we get into some more contemporary things is how the, is some of the so-called contradictions in Scripture and how they they're resolved. So we'll get that. So we've got at least two or three weeks of good material here, maybe more. The more I'm studying, the more new things are coming up, and we all get to benefit, okay? Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for reminding us that your word is your word. It's not just another book. It's not just another uh, source of information. It's not just something that's very helpful, but it is the very truth of the almighty, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them and the one who sent us a Savior to die for us. And we owe everything we are and everything we have to you because only through the gospel and through Jesus Christ do we have real life. And the only place to learn about that life is in your inerrant, infallible word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.